Hello and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history program at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Today I am speaking with Dr. Jillian Hartley, a professor at Arkansas Northeastern College. We haven't talked with any full-time professors yet on the podcast, even though it is the first thing that most people think of when they consider careers in history. This was intentional because full-time teaching jobs in history, and the humanities in general, have declined precipitously over the past decade or so, and most students will go into alternative careers, such as those that we've discussed in previous episodes. Some history students go into full-time teaching jobs, though, and it's time to talk about those a bit. Today, Dr. Hartley and I will discuss her background and talk about what it is that community college professors do with their lives. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Jillian Hartley and I am a professor of history at Arkansas Northeastern College in Blyville, Arkansas. And what is your academic and professional background? Uh, my academic background, I have an MA in history from Arkansas State University, and I actually have a PhD in heritage studies from Arkansas State University. So I'm one of those at the PhD, um, I, it's interdisciplinary, so I'm one of those interdisciplinary folks. And I started teaching as a uh, graduate assistant, I think back in 1999. And so I did that when I was working on my master's degree. And then when I finished my master's degree, I did some adjunct work for several local community colleges. I received a, an offer actually for a full-time spring term after doing part-time in the fall for one of the community colleges about 16 years ago, which is Arkansas Northeastern College. And I decided to go back to school in 2006 and work on my PhD. And so that's, I spent about 10 years doing that because working full time and having a family, um, it seemed to be the, the better option for me. So I completed my PhD last May, May of uh, 2016. And what are your uh, research and teaching interests? Well, uh, my research and teaching interests have shifted over the years. My, my master's thesis, I actually approached one of the professors of, of Arkansas history here in the state and asked him when I was doing my master's degree where there was an area that needed research. And he told me two different topics. He said, well, we need something done on Sunday legislation or Sabbath laws. I would call them blue laws because I think that's what people in the East called them, but they weren't printed on blue paper here in Arkansas. So they're called Sabbath laws. He said, that's an area that needs a lot of attention. And he said, another one is the history of drainage in the state. And at the time I thought, well, who in the world wants to research drainage ditches? <laughs> and so I opted for <laughs> researching um, Sabbath legislation, which of course, if, if you know, people aren't familiar, um, there was a tendency for some states, especially in the South, to try to pass laws that forbade working on Sunday. And they also had what were called like three mile laws. And it, they stated, for example, like you couldn't build a, a bar or any kind of liquor establishment within three miles of a, a church or a school. And these were passed in the mid 1800s. So being three miles within a church or a school basically put them out way away from town. And people either had to ride a horse or walk to go get alcohol. Um, 
but that was a lot of fun. And so to my knowledge, I'm still maybe the only person <clears throat> who's done in-depth research about that. What's interesting is when I started working on my dissertation, I kind of took a turn and became very interested in environmental history. And I wanted to do something that was close to where I live because my son was actually pretty young at the time and I couldn't do a lot of extensive travel to do research. And so lo and behold, what I decided to write about for my dissertation topic was ditches. Uh, the very thing that nice. years before I thought, <laughs> who would want to do that? But being involved in environmental history, you know, there's been quite a bit written about um, the development of agriculture in places like Virginia and soil exhaustion. And there's been quite a bit written about national parks. And I recognize that drainage ditches were used to reclaim millions of acres in the United States. And I live near an area that's actually one of the most productive agricultural regions in the country. And it is productive because of drainage ditches. Basically, these massive projects that were funded at the local level that people came in and they basically dredged the areas and the drainage ditches that I wrote about specifically was the Little River Drainage District in the Missouri Boot Hill. And they actually removed more dirt in that project than what was removed during the uh, digging of the Panama Canal. It's over 600 miles worth of ditches, but it really, what I focused on is how it transformed the environment, which led to agriculture in the region that was sustainable. It led to population growth. And so for anybody familiar with a lot of the small towns in these areas that were reclaimed in the early 1900s and mid 1900s, most of the buildings were actually built right after the reclamation period. So the downtown, uh, for example, in that area dates back to like the 1920s and 1930s. And so you start to see populations of people coming in. And um, that was my main research for my dissertation. So again, I, I came back around and I finally realized that uh, Dr. Michael Dugan knew what he was talking about. Those ditches were actually pretty important. I had a similar experience. Uh, my dissertation was on environmental regulation in uh, California, and uh -huh. California, of course, being so you know it's so dependent on having an adequate water supply that, right. of course, the the construction of these massive water projects out in California was really the basis of California becoming the economic and political powerhouse that it is today. I mean that that state could not exist if you didn't have these massive systems of redistributing water. And it's not a, like you said, when you're first coming at it, it's not a very sexy topic. It's right. not, you know, we're, <laughs> we're not talking about wars or civil rights or, you know, dramatic right. protests or anything like that. But in a way, you're talking about kind of the existential your reasons that some that uh, a, a polity exists because it wouldn't happen <laughs> if you weren't right. able and to move water from one place to another. You wouldn't have the agriculture the massive, I mean, using the California example, I mean, Los Angeles, the city, shouldn't exist because there's no water it there. Should, <laughs> the right, only reason it, it does is exist. because they're importing it from elsewhere. That's exactly right. I've, I've actually seen, you know, driving down from or driving into L.A. coming from the north. Is it the big aqueducts? Is that the, what they are? Mm -hmm. you, know, you can see the huge pipes and stuff coming in, and you're right. And I think, too, what's important is that these are things that have to be maintained. Yes. You know, so this requires it's 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 like a almost a living form of history when you're discussing it with somebody because it's not just oh this happened back then and look the project went well and people live there. You know, these are things that require constant maintenance and upkeep and if they're not maintained properly, 
then people can't live there. And I want to share with you a saying, though, and I have no idea who said it, but there used to be a saying that was um, that in in the East, water flowed away from money, and in the West, it flowed toward money, because in the East, most of the time, people were trying to get the water to leave, right. you know? <laughs> and yep. in the West, it was, how can we bring water here from sometimes hundreds of miles away exactly. and uh, that's i mean that's kind of the story of california and the the, the broader west in general is that yeah wealth right. follows the the water and so um, I, I mean even during the gold rush you had to go to where the water was to get the gold out of the ground so it's okay. uh, kind of this constant uh feature of life out in the out in the far west Right, it is, it is, and um, I was I appreciated the opportunity, and it was also nice to be able to contribute some to the Upper Delta region, or really, it's the Missouri, or the, I'm sorry, the Mississippi River's alluvial floodplain, because that's an area too that hasn't had a great deal of research. So you know, it's always nice to be able to contribute in an area that's somewhat lacking. Yeah, and it's also a good way to bring rural and urban history together because it's uh, yes. Because, yeah, the water is coming generally from rural areas being consumed in urban areas. And so it's a way, generally when you're talking political history, social history, a lot of times the rural part gets left out. But environmental history is a good way to bring the two together. It is. It really is. And like with the with the area I researched, it also, um, one of the big dynamics, too, is what's the role of like the Army Corps of Engineers since the 1927 flood and the uh, Flood Control Act that followed that. Because this is an area, too, that when the Mississippi River starts to rise, so does everything else around it. It can be rather nerve-wracking for people who live near it when this is happening. But it's also important to note that these things were, when they were constructed, the engineers tried to do a very good job and in most cases did an excellent job of creating a system that could withstand a lot of water. Of course, at the same time, too, you know, there's a lot of issues with the climate that are changing and shifting. <laughs> and man-made apparatuses like drainage systems can only withstand so much. And so that's been a recent concern of people living in the area in recent years and, and how much taxpayers are willing to continue to pay to maintain these drainage operations but again I, I don't need to keep harping on california but um <laughs> there was just earlier in the year when california was getting these record rainstorms and all of the man-made reservoirs were at peak capacity and right. uh there was lake oroville which is kind of the linchpin of the entire state water system the uh spillway over the dam actually disintegrated under the pressure of all that water and so they had to issue evacuations for people downstream because they were afraid the whole dam might blow and if that yeah. that dam is like 700 feet tall, so if it goes down, oh. there goes a big chunk of California also. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things where – Yeah, exactly. It's, it, yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's one of these things where you just don't think about it until something goes wrong. It's, it's kind right. of an inv invisible part of our lives. It's an integral part of our lives, but you don't notice it until something goes wrong. And then when something goes wrong, it's, it's catastrophic. Right. And I think as historians, the opportunity that we have is to explain the history that's led up to the creation of these things and how mm -hmm. much work and effort went into it in the hopes that maybe people will have an uh, appreciation or at least the, some knowledge of how these operations started and, and why they are still so complicated today. 
Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, I approve of that topic. Well, good. <laughs> Retroactively back to when you were working on your PhD, I'm I'm on I'm on board with that topic. So yeah. you, you talked a little bit earlier about how you entered the uh, uh, the workforce as a professor at a community college, but do you have anything more to say about that? How did you end up in your current job? Yes, I'd love to talk some about it. Well, when I was finishing up my master's uh, thesis, I happened to live in an area where there's about three community colleges within about an hour's drive. And I really wanted to teach community college and, you know, having a master's degree, that was what made sense. And just to give um, some of the listeners a little bit of background, you know, Arkansas is a state that has, I think we have maybe three public universities. We have several private, but, you know, we have U of A in Fayetteville. We have ASU here in Jonesboro, where I live. And then we have the University of Central Arkansas. And then there's branches off of those. But we have 22 community colleges, and I think that's one thing many people need to realize is that there are a lot of community colleges in states, and many of them are located in rural areas, not all. You know, I think the Dallas Community College System is actually one of the largest in the country, but the community colleges oftentimes are in more kind of rural spread out areas because, you know, when they were built, most of them came about in the 70s. They, you know, intentionally put them away from the universities for people to have the opportunity to go to school. So the first semester, I really tried to find adjunct work. I actually ended up working at several community colleges. I've actually taught for all three of the community colleges, you know, in my radius. And I was very fortunate that one of the colleges came to me after teaching adjunct in the fall and actually offered me a full-time contract for the spring. And so I, I kind of fell into a job because they they were looking for a full-time instructor and I I guess they liked what I was doing in my adjunct courses and so I was offered the job and so I've I've been at the same community college full-time for the last 16 years and it's been a really great experience but I did have experience at Arkansas State as a graduate assistant teaching and so there's a lot of differences I think one of the main differences is community college instructors and professors are expected to teach more courses every term I think at most universities and correct me if I'm wrong but I think it's about four courses a term for traditional fall spring yeah, I think it, it obviously there's kind of a wide variety, but I think most like the research one universities, the you know the the top of the line ones, which expect a lot more research than teaching. I think usually instructors teach like maybe one or two courses per semester. At some of the lower tier state schools, it might be three or four per semester. Right. But yeah, I'm guessing this. It's generally from what I've heard, and I'm sure you can back this up that it's going to be more than that for a community college. It is. I'm Contractually, I have to teach five courses a term, and a lot of community colleges will have the opportunity to do overloads, basically, rather than hire adjunct to do over the five courses that a full-time person is teaching. They'll give the full-time person the offer to make a little extra money by teaching more, and so there are some terms that instructors at my community college will teach eight courses. And I've I've told that to some university Holy faculty cow. members, and they that's exactly what they say. They're just like, "Oh my gosh, how are you teaching that?" But in addition to that, most community colleges require office hours that are usually ten hours or more, which is somewhat different than universities. And I mm -hmm. I think a lot of that too is because universities there is more of a emphasis at the universities for research, 
where at the community college level, the emphasis is usually on the teaching. And so, for example, if I want to pursue a separate research project that, you know, I could tell my dean or my vice president of academics and they, you know, the two would probably pat me on the back and say, well, that sounds very interesting. You know, go for it. <laughs> but I wouldn't have the requirement. Right. You know, I wouldn't have the, you know, Jillian, come into the office. You haven't published anything in four years. And, you know, so I think, you know, there's some give and take in both directions with that. So the, the big emphasis at a community college is teaching. Of course, a community college, at least in Arkansas, community colleges are only offering freshman and sophomore level courses. So we teach basically 102 level, 200 level courses. Where that can get complicated, it means that students are limited when it comes to taking more than their freshman and sophomore level courses. So that's something else that takes place at a community college. A lot of the advising duties, um, even if there's an advising center that sees students when they first come in, eventually they do want to pass advisees over to faculty members. You know, at the same time, too, community colleges have taken on a new role all over the country um, because community colleges, because they're located in so many different places, and in most states, the community college, there's probably one within a 30 to 60-minute drive tops. They've really targeted technical training as well. One thing that I will say about it that's a lot of fun when I was at GA at ASU, we kind of had our history department and it was great. You know, you're around all these people who love history and finally, you know, you could talk to everybody and, you know, talk about the environmental history, people who, you know, understand it and, and appreciate it and that type of thing. But when I started working at community college, um, I'm one of only two history faculty members. And so I don't really have that there. You know, I don't really have the history department. But what I do have is I have a biology teacher a hallway over from me. You know, I have a person teaching A&P down the hallway from me. And I have, for example, there was a man who used to teach um, horticulture. And so anytime I would go to plant a garden, you know, in the spring, you know, I would call him up, you know, and say, hey, I'm going to plant this or that. And he would either say, oh, don't do that or you need to do this. And so at a community college, you may not have necessarily the department you know, that's solidified that's your discipline. But at the same time, too, you get exposure to all types of people from all kinds of backgrounds. And so, you know, there's there's advantages and disadvantages to each. But I, I've truly enjoyed it. It's very eye-opening. I actually, next door to me, I, I actually have a doctor of psychology. And I have to tell you, I'm constantly going and knocking on his door. <laughs> now, he technically can't. <laughs> You know, and he'll tell me, he's like, I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm like, I know, but I just have to get your take on this. You know, it is a different environment, though, but I think it's a very good option for people who are maybe looking to teach and who are maybe primarily interested in teaching and, and maybe enjoy research but don't want the pressures that come with research at, at a university. So you mentioned earlier that you have both an MA and a PhD. Uh, just to clarify, is it true in Arkansas like it is in other places where generally the expectations for an instructor at a community college is a master's degree and the PhD is usually not required uh, for a community college 
but it is required for a university teaching position. Is that the same in your area? Yes, that's the same standard. The PhD, it will give you an advantage applying. You know, what I found is a lot of community colleges now, if you have a PhD versus a master's, a lot of community colleges are hiring the PhDs. Mm -hmm. But the requirement is still a master's degree with 18 hours in the subject area. And, of course, at the universities here in Arkansas, there are people with master's degrees teaching, but they are not people who are um, t- on a tenure track. You know, they, they, they've been known to give them one-year contracts back-to-back as long as they have the, the degree and the 18 hours. But at the community college, the standard still is mostly master's degrees. Okay, and that's that. That does kind of track with national trends that I've seen also. Yeah. But you did mention that the PhD tends to give you a little bit better boost, at least during the application process. And I think that really speaks to kind of the job market that we are in these days. Since yeah. full-time tenure-track positions are disappearing around the country, there are a lot of under underemployed or unemployed PhDs that are starting to apply for positions at places like community colleges that previous generations they may not have considered, but now. You in their quest for full-time employment, a lot of PhDs are applying for uh, those types of jobs too, which is putting instructors with master's degrees in, into competition with PhDs. And generally, community colleges are probably more apt to hire PhDs just as a, I don't know if it's a prestige thing or something like that, but I think it maybe I think there is probably a inclination to hire a PhD over an MA if all else is equal. Yeah, and I think it definitely factors in. And another thing too, and I don't really know if this is a, if this is would encourage someone to work on a PhD, but another reason why I think they're hiring them is that on the pay scale, it's really not a huge difference in the yeah. pay between a master's and and a PhD. So you do have a lot of people sort of looking too at the financial aspect of you know we can hire this person who has a PhD, and we'll only have to pay him a little bit more than we would pay this person with a master's. Right, and the PhD may not necessarily even be may not even be a better teacher, but but credential-wise, you're getting more bang for the buck if you're hiring a PhD over over someone with an MA. And in fact, it could, it oftentimes right. goes the opposite direction. Sometimes PhDs are actually worse teachers oh, yeah. than MAs because the the MAs tend to have the perspective that I'm going to go into teaching, whereas PhDs right. a lot of times have the perspective that no, I'm going to go into research, which right. can lead to conflicts with a community college type perspective. Right, because like like I said before, and like you're you're pointing out too, you know, community colleges the teaching is is the main uh, focal point. And another thing, too, with community colleges and in different states, this is true of universities as well, there's a lot more emphasis put on success rates now. So, you know, colleges are really looking for people who they consider to be good teachers, who nobody is saying give grades, but who will work with students and really try to go to the extra mile to get them help when they need it so that those students can graduate because in states like Arkansas, we've actually gone to a system where colleges are getting funding based upon completion rates. And so now more than ever, there's an emphasis on having that good teacher there. And, you know, you may get someone with a PhD who doesn't mind doing the teaching, but if his or her mind is off on some research and you want to get you know, cancel class early because you're thinking about the article you need to be writing or what have you. That's an issue. And I think maybe not only in community colleges, but with a lot of the funding formulas changing, it will probably also be something universities will have to really consider as well. Yeah. And that's going to be very difficult for a lot of academics to wrap their heads around. Yeah. Because Arkansas has gone that direction and 
I don't know if you want to include this or not, but from what I've read, that the federal government is weighing that as well, <laughs> the idea of completion versus headcounts. So. Yeah, as people get more and more concerned about the massive amounts of student loan debt and all of that, there is kind of a push right. towards making that that student loan debt more efficient. By it really needs to pay off, or else why are we why are we shelling out all this money? Well, and they also did a thing too, where they in our state now a associate's degree is sixty hours, and a bachelor's degree is one hundred and twenty. Because, you know, a lot of people were having to take out loans and go longer because the bachelor's degree requirement was one hundred and you know thirty two hours or something along that line. So one way to combat that and try to promote graduation is to, you know, really cut off the hours and say, you know, if they want to get an associate's degree, it's going to have to be 60 hours, give or take an hour or two. But there's there's not a lot of wiggle room there with the state. The state wants people to be able to come for two years and be finished and move on. Yeah, the old days when students could take their time and kind of wander from major to major while they're finding themselves and all of that, oh, yeah. that's not the case anymore. <laughs> no, and especially for any student who needs financial aid. Right. You know, that's the reality for students today. And also, too, one thing about a community college that is somewhat different is that, you know, you really are expected to be a member of the community and try to do things for the community. And I've had the opportunity for the last three years to actually be on a board of the Delta Gateway Museum, which is a museum in, in Blyville. And I was asked to be on the board because I do teach at the college. But there are a lot of opportunities that come up because you have to kind of be I'm not going to necessarily say a member of the community, but you you are encouraged to try to be a part of the community. And I think sometimes with universities, people will kind of pass by and go, well, there's the university, and then here's the nearby city. With community colleges, the idea is that you're actually a part of the community. And so there are lots of community efforts. Just for example, yesterday, I was on a uh, Martin Luther King Commission panel uh, for promoting better relationships between citizens and law enforcement. And I was on this really great panel discussion that had um, a chief of police and a student success navigator on it. But there are a lot of opportunities that come up that are also sometimes very good professionally at community colleges because of that relationship uh, between the college and the people who are living in the town. Um, it's its not a high school, but at the same time, too, it's not as distant as a university. Yeah, I've, from time to time, I've, I've been an adjunct um, for a community college here in town. I've, I've had kind of the same experiences that I think a big part of it is because community college professors are expected to teach and not do research, that leaves them you know, you're just physically in the community that much more often because if it's a research, if your primary goal is research, you know, you're going to be spending a lot of time at the, I don't know, National Archives or the, <laughs> right. the British Museum or wherever the sources are that you're doing for your research. So you're actually going to be kind of detached from the community for a large large part of the year or, you know, every time you take a sabbatical or whatever, you flee for the summer or whatever. But the community college instructors since you're engaging in the classroom with so many students, I think there's just kind of a natural relationship there between the, uh, the professors and the community because you're literally interacting with the community on a much larger scale basis than a lot of professors at research institutions are. Right. And and you also have the thing where you do have a lot of people in your – you have a lot of students in your class. Some of them went to high school with each other or they, they were neighboring towns and they know one another. And so – Oftentimes going into a class, 
you know, half my students already know each other. And I'm not really sure that's always the case at a university. And it's also nice, too, because at community college, I'll sometimes have people's relatives come up to me. And, you know, they'll say, well, who are you? And then I'll introduce myself and they'll say, oh, I know you. My grandson was in your class. Or, you know, you know, my daughter's in your class. And so there's almost like a recognition of, it's hard to describe. I don't want to say it's friendship, but there's a real recognition of, oh, we have this connection. You know, you're a part of the community. And and I'm not obviously saying that does not happen with university professors because I'm sure it can. But I think it happens more so at community colleges. So just to wrap up here, do you have any favorite book or artifact or history-related item that you would like to recommend to us? So I will, I've got two that I want to recommend because if anybody's asking the question, what is environmental history, which I have been asked several times, one thing I do recommend is that people read Roderick Nash's Wilderness in the American Mind, which was published back in the mid 60s. Oh, yes. Because, you know, and you're familiar with it just as like a starting point. To me, that's like the ultimate starting point of, you know, what does it really mean, the environment, because it's, it's really connected to everything um, in our country and in the world. But I think some some people might want to know more specifically, well, what actually is it? And so I think that's a great starting point. The other thing I want to recommend is Ken Burns' series over the National Parks, the National Parks America's Best Idea that aired on PBS. I think he came out with it in 2009 or 2010. For anyone who wants to know how it is, people like myself can connect with the environment and and really want to to look at how important it is to our history and our heritage. I think Ken did a phenomenal job in that series showing how important it really is. I agree. That was a a great documentary series. And um, Roderick Nash's book, The Wilderness and the American Mind, I mean, I'm looking at it on my bookshelf right now. And it's (laughs) it's amazing to think that that was his doctoral dissertation. And it it just makes me feel so inferior that he's able to do that as a dissertation and that my dissertation is nowhere near that level of work. (laughs) It it is. It's amazing. And, you know, and, and, and I think, too, it shows that history is more than just sort of writing down these things have happened. It's really, um, you know, the way he approaches it, it's this, it's theoretical. It, it's, it's important to be able to connect with the transcendentalists. And, you know, I, I, I love that work. But And I will admit, when I watched Ken Burns' series over the National Parks, I wept several times because he, he's such a phenomenal filmmaker. And I won't get into his Civil War one because I know I've heard different Civil War historians debate about it, but I have never heard an environmental historian say anything negative about the National Park series or try to pick that apart. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Rob. And thank you to the listeners for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at snhuhistory at gmail.com. I'm Rob Denning. Thanks for listening.